You are as aware as I am of the dangerous times in which we are living. I believe that the Apostle Paul may have been referring to this day when he spoke of perilous times. It's difficult to find a similar event in human history that has so drastically touched every single human being on the face of this planet. At the same time, these could be the most interesting, exciting times in recent memory. And they certainly are for the student of Bible prophecy. We as Christians should never lose sight of the fact that we were not left here at this time just to survive, uh, much less to be comfortable. We were placed here to make a difference, an eternal difference. We are here to serve, not to be served. We are here to give, not to take. We are here to produce, not to consume. And our message of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is exactly what is needed by people who have no idea of what is taking place all around them. All they see is that their way of life, to which they have become accustomed, is being threatened. Guidelines and mandates, restrictions and regulations, limited movement, financial loss, all pale in comparison with the reality of what God is really doing. And just as things never went back to what we call normal after 9-11, I doubt that we will ever see things again as they were 12 months ago. God is preparing us, the redeemed, for the blessed hope, which is the next event in his prophetic calendar. And he is setting the, the scene for an unregenerate world to be judged. What we must do is make sure that we are where we are supposed to be and that we are doing what we are supposed to be doing to respond to these two events. That is why we are meeting for the next four days. Now I want you to look at our text and just one phrase in verse 12 says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Several years ago, I was in a missions conference in Louisiana, and I heard an evangelist, a man that I have the most, uh, utmost respect for, say something that just did not make sense. He said that Christians' giving increased during the Great Depression. Not only that, he said that giving during the Great Depression was greater than giving in the year 2000. I found that so difficult to believe that I did not repeat it until I found re reliable documentation to confirm the accuracy. Well, I found that documentation. Listen to this. Among churches, church members of the 11 primary Protestant denominations or their historical antecedents in the United States and Canada, per member giving as a percentage of income was lower in the year 2000 than in either 1921 or 1933. In 1921, per member giving as a percentage of income was 2.9%. I'm gonna throw a lot of figures out, but I'll, I'll, I'll condense them for you in just a minute. In 1933, at the depth of the Great Depression, per member giving grew to 3.3%. That's a 14% increase. Christians gave more, 14% more, during the Great Depression than they did in the Roaring Twenties. By 2000, after a half century, 
of unprecedented prosperity, giving had fallen to 2.6%. That's a 21% drop. 21st century Christians are giving 21% less than Great Depression Christians. No wonder they were called the greatest generation. This is amazing on several levels, but it should not surprise us. Down through history, God's people in general, and churches in particular, have survived and even thrived during times of adversity. It seems that Christians uh, tend to, uh, that adversity tends to bring out the best in us, and prosperity uh, tends to lull us to sleep both spiritually and in almost every other way. My father, L.H. Ashcraft, was born in 1916 during the Spanish flu epidemic. I never heard him or my mother or my grandparents mention the Spanish flu. They did speak of the Great Depression. My dad and his parents and two brothers moved from Western Arkansas to Fort Worth, Texas in a Conestoga covered wagon in 1928. He was 17 years old in 1933. He, his two brothers, and his father worked 12 hours a day planting onions in Fort Worth, Texas, making 20 cents an hour. The only way they could survive was to pool their income in order to put food on the table. My dad said that they were so poor that if a thief were to break into their house, they would help him look because there was nothing worth stealing. It is going to be very interesting to see if this axiom holds up among 21st century Christians during this present adversity, namely the coronavirus. The man of God warned Israel about this in Amos chapter 6. In verse 1, he said, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountains of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. And as you read the rest of that chapter, it's obvious that God's people had become lax and lazy, enjoying a season of opulence and prosperity, and at the same time, neglecting their spiritual lives. I'm going to say something, and, and, and please don't judge this as political. It's not political. I'm trying to make a point. Some of you have already thought, boy, he lost his train of thought. Well, my mind does wander. I hope one of these days it doesn't wander so far it can't make itself back. But President Trump's campaign slogan was, Make America Great Again. MAGA caps and T-shirts and buttons and other items abounded. The degree of success that President Trump's policies may have had in making America great again is a matter of opinion. You're entitled to yours as much as I'm entitled to mine. The truth is we may be great again, but we are not godly again. And while we revel in one of the greatest economic booms in history, I'm afraid that we have neglected the most important aspect of our national condition, our recognition of God in every area of our lives, public and private. Many Bible scholars believe that the United States of America appears nowhere in Bible prophecy. We're almost an historic and prophetic and eschatological afterthought. That said, I believe that aside from Israel, America may have been the most blessed nation in history, very probably for two reasons. Number one, our support of Israel, and then our being used to promote the cause of worldwide evangelism. No other nation has done more to support and defend God's chosen people than the United States of America. No other nation in history has sent more missionaries abroad than this country. 
No nation has experienced more revival, has produced more preachers, has built more churches, preached more gospel than this nation. You may be aware that the, most of the Ivy League, uh, as well as many other prominent universities, were established for the purpose of training Bible preachers. Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Brown, University of Chicago, Wake Forest, Baylor, SMU, TCU were all founded on Bible principles. Some of their founders would probably make most of us independent fundamental Baptists look like rank liberals. They were God-fearing men. It is my belief that America has the only military, or at least one of the, one of the only uh, very few in history, whose basic design has not been conquest and occupation, but liberation. Someone said that America's greatness lies in America's kindness. With all her flaws and mistakes, America, for the most part, has been the most positive worldwide influence in the history of mankind. We sh By the way, don't ever question the patriotism of a missionary. We leave this country because we love this country. One of the best things you can do for your country, if you love your country, is to leave that country because leaving that country and taking the gospel around the world is what increases God's blessings on that country. We share our prosperity, our knowledge, our progress, our technology, our inventions, our people, and even our territory with the rest of the world. In times of natural disaster, America is always the first to respond with humanitarian and medical and economic aid. Only Israel is a close second. Emma Lazarus composed the poem inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. It's called the New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles, from her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send those, the homeless, Tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. There was a time when grade school kids were required to learn this poem by memory. I attended elementary school in Waxahachie, Texas. Waxahachie is an Indian name that means close to Walmart. <laughs> and that was in the 1950s. Every morning, uh, started with the principal over the intercom reading a passage of scripture and praying. My seventh grade teacher called me little preacher. And it was a, considered a compliment. Now it probably would be considered pejorative. But I'm afraid that we have become at ease in Zion. I fear that we have come to assume that we will always go from good to better from prosperity to more prosperity, from comfort to more comfort, from ease to more ease. Well, my dear friend, that may have just come to a screeching halt. If this 
pandemic lasts as long as currently projected and as long as some seem to want it to last, and if it has the effect that it is now being predicted to have, nothing will ever be the same. And I don't pretend to know if God has sent this to wake us up, but I do know that it will either open our eyes or it will further blind us depending on our response. We will either have it uh, have a Second Chronicles 7.14 repentance, or we will succumb to a Pharaoh-like hardening of the heart to God's patience and long-suffering. There will be no neutral ground. Have we come to our time of reckoning with God? Is this the point in history in which, as God's people, we either humble ourselves in repentance and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, or will we attempt to go on as nothing happened, hoping that the government will get us back to some degree of normalcy? Are we about to see the end of the times of the Gentiles and the ushering end of the man of sin? You know as well as I do that Satan does not know when the coming of the Son of the Man will be. Jesus said that the Father has put that in his own power. But it stands to reason, and I believe, have believed this for some time, that in every generation, Satan must prepare someone capable of assuming the role of Antichrist. I believe that since the ascension of Christ into heaven, that Satan has had at all times someone ready to assume the position of Antichrist. He has to have that because he does not know when he's coming. The world's response to this pandemic shows how easily the world will succumb to the fear to the point in which they are willing to accept anyone who has a solution to such a complex problem. 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. You know, of course, that that was written uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the first century. There were, have been, and will continue to be many Antichrists. Most Baptists believe in the imminent coming of Christ, that he could appear at any time without any warning, and at any time in, the, in, in history uh, since Christ's ascension, Jesus could have come. The term soon coming has to do with the quickness of his coming. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 7, that his coming would be precedented by nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Does anyone need documentation for that? Famines. Do you realize that around 9 million people die every year of hunger? A child dies every 10 seconds from hunger. Earthquakes, as of today, April 4, in the last 24 hours, there have been 106 earthquakes in the United States, 756 in the last seven days, 2,817 in the last 30 days, 38,094 earthquakes in the United States in the last 365 days. Pestilences, pandemic we're seeing today without a doubt is nothing short of a pestilence. And while not unprecedented in history, I mentioned the Spanish flu, uh, what is unprecedented is the international response that we see 
and the almost complete alteration of all societal normalcy. Can you name one generally accepted normal human activity that has not been affected by our attempts to slow the spreading of this virus? Now look again at the verse in Exodus 1.12. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I wonder if that will be said of our generation and of the people living at this time. Thank you for listening to my introduction. Just a few thoughts about that. Number one, if these are not the last days, immediately before the coming of the Lord, we should treat them as though they were. These happenings should only intensify our awareness of the quickness or the suddenness with which we could hear the trumpet sound and the angels shout. Number two, this awareness should be accompanied by an increased intensity in our efforts to get the gospel around the world. Amen. While our public gatherings and other outreach programs may have been temporarily put on hold, we should take every opportunity to share the gospel with those with whom we do have contact. This is not a time to retreat. It is a time to advance with more intensity and more dedication and more, uh-oh, I'm going to use an un-American word, more sacrifice and more fervor than ever before. We must follow the directive of Hebrews 10.25 and exhort and encourage one another. We must, be con we must constantly look for ways to share the gospel in the light of whatever limitations are imposed by this current situation. And there is always a way to do that. While these limitations are inconvenient and they're irritating in our area for weeks, no one under 12 or over 65 could go into a restaurant. I almost starved to death. And when I turn 13, I'll be able to go into a restaurant. We should not be so profoundly shaken by the fear with which this world has been gripped in responding to this pandemic. No one apart from a Bible-believing Christian can offer such a message of, or a perspective in a world in chaos. This crisis does not have to limit our efforts in getting the gospel to the world. We should never allow the world to define who we are or what we do. We should never allow events, catastrophic though they may seem, to dictate or even influence our level of resolve. Jesus said that we would encounter affliction and persecution, but he said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Amen. I heard of a Chinese pastor who said something interesting and convicting. He requested that Western Christians not pray that Chinese Christians be relieved of persecution. He said that it was persecution that had intensified their devotion to Christ. He also said that the next wave of missionaries could easily come from China because Chinese Christians are willing to go anywhere and they are not afraid to die. Amen. What an amazing commentary on these dear brethren. It is estimated that there are over 70 million Christians in China 
worshiping in underground houses and churches. I ask you a question, how does our Christianity compare to theirs? I doubt that they would understand our level of commitment or lack thereof. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. What would be the response of a modern-day Western Christian to the degree of persecution to which our Chinese brethren are subjected? And what is it going to take to get us to refrain from being at ease in Zion? Are we going to allow, and I hate this term, our hunkering down, which we are told is necessary in order to avoid infection, are we going to allow that to bleed over into our spiritual lives and our service and our dedication to God and our obedience to the Great Commission? Could it be that God is allowing us a taste of what is common every day, part of the lives of our third world Christian brethren? Could God be allowing us to experience what is part and parcel of the lives of many, if not most, of the missionaries that we expect to go into dark, oppressive regions of a pagan, godless world? Would God that what was said of the Israelites under Pharaoh be said of us, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew? Perhaps this is what it will take to bring about the revival that so many of us have prayed for. Amen. History has shown that revival seldom comes from prosperity and ease. It is usually the product of adversity and persecution and severe suffering. The pastor asked one of his missionaries how he could challenge his American brethren, American church to be more seriously active in the Great Commission. David Hasselfluck, missionary to the Balkans, responded to the pastor with this reply. Number one, let them know the incredible difficulty of leaving houses and lands for the gospel. It's easy to feel the tingly sensations of missionary surrender by listening to a well-crafted, musically powerful missionary DVD in a climate-controlled auditorium and then hearing an impassioned sermon. But turn off the AC when you preach that sermon. Pump in the smells of body odor and strange food, cigarette smoke, and other unidentifiable pungent fragrances. Blast some insipid Balkan or tribal music in the background. Talk about depression and loneliness and pain and smog and disease and threats and fears and danger and discomfort and frustration. Talk about the illogical grammar of another language. Talk about there being ten demises that rip your heart out for every Timothy that is faithful. Talk about pouring out blood and sweat and tears and seeing the harvest come in more slowly than you thought it should. Talk about kids, missionary kids struggling to adjust and forever becoming third culture people, neither being American nor Timbuktuan. Missionary sacrifice is overwhelming. Emily and I last night prayed for all 15 missionary families, the other 14 missionary families. We counted 19 children among those missionary families. They will all become third culture people. This isn't a fact in, fi in, in, in fine print. It's plastered all over the New Testament. 
But missionaries fail to present this side because we don't want to sound like we're belly aching. Number two, at the same time, let them know the incredible reward of doing all this for Christ's sake. Amen. Talk up the joy that was set before Christ at the cross. Talk up eternal treasures. Mention the party throne over the one versus the 90 and nine. Overshadow the immense difficulties of missionary sacrifice by the overwhelming reward, rewards of eternity. Make them jealous for God's glory and tell them how incredibly amazing it is for God to turn on the spiritual light in a pagan's heart. Let them imagine how tear-jerkingly awesome it is to hear a sinner calling upon his, the name of the Lord after being convicted by the Holy Spirit through someone as, in, as unworthy as they. And even in the absence of uh, conversions in a large scale, let them know that there is great fulfillment in knowing that amidst the pagan sounds and oppressive darkness, you have been a light lit by the light. And though no one come, though no one heed, you are there. And they know that you are there. And he knows that you are there. And he is there with you always until it's all over. And you go to your final sleep saying, I left it all out there on the field and it was worth it all. Amen. Now, how will you respond to this crisis in regard to your personal commitment to the cause of getting the gospel to a waiting world? Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if our response to all the challenges that we received during these four days were to go far beyond what anyone expected or imagined that we would do. More important than that, don't you think God would be pleased if we surpassed even our own expectations in reaching the nations with the gospel? May I ask you a question? What temporal thing are you willing to give up in order to put a big hole in the darkness in which the rest of the world is living. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Let me ask you one question. Every missionary that I know has to change his lifestyle in order to go to the mission field. No missionary that I know lives on the same level on the mission field that he would live here at home. Here's the question. What right do I have to ask a missionary to change his lifestyle in order to go to the mission field if I'm not willing to change my lifestyle in order to send him? And by the way, Bible giving is lifestyle changing 
giving.